Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is just a quick intro because this episode is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to hearing on this channel. So I'm speaking to Dr. Andrew Appleton, and we are going to discuss the relationship between the Ontario government and Ontario physicians. We talk about things like the ongoing relationship between the healthcare system and the government talk about the some of the perceptions that physicians are just money hungry drug dealers who are out to try and make a buck and how some of those perceptions may be false specifically when it comes to the healthcare system in Ontario and the entire country of Canada and then getting into tricky topics like the financial incentives that were created for hospitals during the times of COVID. So Dr. Appleton is highly qualified to speak on this topic, which will be proven when we discuss his credentials in the intro. And I hope everyone enjoys this thread in the podcast. Have a great day. And thank you for listening. The sun is shining. <laughs> I feel good. Is I it shining? S- it I wasn't shining when I got here this sleep morning. Last night. Yeah. I had a terrible sleep too. We had. I don't know what how old your house is, but ours is a fairly new build, so it's got the hardwired smoke alarms. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when one goes off, everyone go goes off. off in the entire house. Right. And ours, at least once a month, malfunctions. There's no fire. One just starts beeping randomly. So, Will, uh, I was telling you. Fire drill. Yeah. So, I was telling you that William's doing this camp with his cousins. His younger of the two cousins is staying with us because they're they're best friends when they're together. Okay. So, I have all of these children uh, in the house, mine, plus the extra. And, uh, and both nights, last night and the night before, this, I've had to deal with these smoke alarms going off in the middle of the night. Two, three in the morning with four Beautiful. kids, seven, Beautiful. six, four, two in the house. Yeah. So I haven't slept well either. That's so amazing. There. Yeah. Yeah. We've got the, we've got the infant factor. And then, you know, when you've got the three, there's always a wild card that gets thrown in. Right. So then my old, my oldest and she had a bad dream and then had a bellyache. And yeah. So know how those things go. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So clearly, uh, not the the topic at hand right now. So why don't we begin, because I might post this in places other than the uh, standard feeds. So you were in us messaging before this, you were telling me how overqualified you are to speak on this matter (laughs) in an attempt to to garner my admiration for you, I assume. Uh, I think it worked. <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, but on the topic of policy and the relationship between government and governing bodies and physicians of all types, specialists, family physicians, what is your experience with being involved in or managing that sort of relationship? Uh, on the policy side, directly? Yeah. Well, you, however you feel qualified to speak about uh, regulatory systems in medicine. Sure. I mean, so I have I have a reasonable understanding of the structure of of the healthcare system in general in Ontario specifically, uh, and I I do hold leadership position locally at uh, at the hospital, uh, so work directly with hospital administration, um, you know, work with budgeting and, and that sort of thing, uh, and then. You know, had done a, a master's in health administration training, so I got a little bit of uh, insider's uh, edition of you know what goes on more at the at the ministry level on down, because that's mainly the the people in in that program we're headed towards, you know, ministry postings or uh, leadership postings within the publicly funded side of the healthcare system. Okay, and I also wanted to ask because I'm going to talk about something specific to uh, some of the government interventions in hospitals if, for the last few years with COVID. So can you also speak to specifically what your role has been in the hospital since uh, early 2020? Sure. So I'm, I'm a team leader for one of the inpatient medicine teams. Uh, so that means you know, overseeing the, the on-call structure, the residents scheduling and you know, any, any issues that happen to come up there. And then of course, during the pandemic, we had to change our geography within the hospital, we had to expand and contract based on volumes. 
Uh, we had to create hot zones. We had to deal with uh, absences of people due to exposures and everything else. Um, we had to deal with you know medical students being taken away from service because of you know as unpaid trainees not wanting to unnecessarily expose them. Um, so essentially, this resulted in many many meetings of uh, right. of leadership and us trying to you know on the fly figure out how we were going to best adapt. Uh, in a very chaotic system. Okay, so with that out of the way, I'll get to the topic that that got me thinking about having this conversation initially. So I saw the recent uh, recent announcement by the Ford government that they're building a new med- uh, medical school in Brampton, which uh, I assume you're familiar with in some way. Uh, so there are, how many medical schools are there in Ontario right now? There's 17 in Canada. In Ontario, we have five or six, five, I think. Okay. And yeah. so this addition, would you say that the addition of a new six. medical school? <laughs> there are six, yeah. Oh, would, would you say that the addition of a new medical school to bring in and formally train physicians is something that is needed right now in Ontario? Uh, it's... <laughs> Difficult to know how to assess that. I, I, you know, I, I think we have the general sense that per capita we have a relatively low number of physicians based on community need, uh, particularly at the primary care level. So if if we can, you know, just put more students into the system and therefore more doctors come out the other end every year, then we probably have a better chance at filling some of those gaps. But that that's a long play, right? So if you start this, then you're going to be enrolling, you know, just first year students and developing curriculum as they go along. So that's, you know, once once the bricks and mortars in place and all of the institution is there, it's at least another six years before the first independently practicing physician can actually go to work. Yeah, this this might lend itself to some understanding about the physician experience because for most and you can tell me if this is correct or you can interject for most eventual physicians you're going to have to have you have to have an undergrad and then in many cases the undergrad is not enough to get you into medical school so you have an undergrad plus some sort of master's program and then perhaps you're going to get into medical school where you're going to commit four years and then after that four years you're going to have a minimum of two years of some sort of additional training and that's just if you're going into family medicine if you're going to be a specialist the additional training on top of that is 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 significantly more significant than the additional two years that a physician is going to get. So when it's all said and done, your post-secondary education is, you know, 10 to 14 years before you actually step into your full paid position as a physician. Uh, and unless you, unless you're entering that, that school system with a family who has a significant amount of money where they're essentially paying that school for you upfront, there is a reasonable amount of debt that a student physician is going to accrue over that yeah, time as well. There's a solid amount of debt. Okay, because <laughs> yeah. when we go back to yeah. talk about some of the perceptions of physicians, right. which are usually – actually, I'll, I'll cover that when we get there. But getting back to the, uh, the school in Brampton – uh, that they're going to build. The first thing I was wondering is, is that where the service bottleneck is? Like when we think about what has happened or what has been highlighted over the past two years, specifically with hospital capacity, it's my understanding that hospital capacity is not a new issue and the resources necessary to serve the Ontario community and the Ontario citizens in a hospital setting is something, this is a decades old problem. So the first thing that I thought when thinking about this opening of the new school is not that it's necessarily a negative thing, but if you're going to put a bunch of money into healthcare to solve the perceived issues of what we have seen in the hospital the past few years, is the resource bottleneck physicians? It's, it would be one of the resource bottlenecks. So why don't but you talk this, about the other ones? Yeah, like the, the volume issue, it doesn't, it doesn't hinge on a single factor like the number of physicians. <clears throat> In fact, I, I would say the pandemic has highlighted that we don't have enough nurses um, and you cannot have a hospital bed without nurse to staff it. Um, we don't have enough PSWs, so those are personal support workers, uh, particularly in the community. So home care, which is another publicly funded service to some extent, 
um, relies on personal support workers to go into people's homes and look after them. And there is a significant shortage of PSWs. And, you know, all of these issues create potential bottlenecks all along the continuum of the system. Mm. So, yeah, so it, so I would just say health human resources is a problem from top to bottom. Okay, so w- why is there a shortage with nurses in and PSWs? Is that an issue of budget? Is that an issue of interest in the position? So probably it's an interest of or uh, it's an issue of interest in the position at, at the PSW level. This uh, these are typically low paying jobs and you know probably not overly respected positions to be in. So it's not a really attractive career necessarily. Um, it depends on who you work for, and the pay structure would be different if you're, um, you know, depending on what agency you're you're working with. Um, but I, I just I think that people are often not willing to put up with the sort of work uh, for the level of pay for that. Nursing, I it hard a little bit hard for me to comment on, but I think nursing is is absolutely is is a good a good career. Um, I work with a lot of nurses uh, directly. Um, there's a lot of burnout from the pandemic uh, on that side. There is a lot of, you know, depending on where you work in the hospital or home care setting or community setting, you know, the job is quite variable. So again, all, all we can really only talk in, in generalities here. But I think nursing is still a desirable career. It's probably more so a, you know, how many RNs and RPNs are we actually licensing every year? And there's there's a mismatch between uh, population growth, individual community need, and the number of people that are actually getting those credentials to do the work that's necessary. And I think that mismatch, as in undercalling the number of personnel that are required to do the work, has been going on for decades. Can you speak a little bit to the history of, I know you haven't been a physician in the hospital setting for the past 20 years, no. but you might be familiar with how long uh, being able to service hospitals and patients has been an issue. Can you speak to a little bit about the duration and yeah. history of that issue? Yeah. Well, I, like I entered medical school in 2006, so I've been kicking around and aware of the system at least for, well, for nearly <laughs> those 20 years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of tuned into the politics of the whole thing before that as well. But we could even go back to the 90s and, you know, certain conservative governments that we had at that time really, really uh, pulled back on healthcare funding and, you know, closed hospital beds, closed long-term care facilities, uh, reduced funding. And the legacy of that ha- was was massive. It, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, still feeling the repercussions of that. And just based on the politics of the whole thing, which is another, you know, issue, if you want to get into that, when you're going election cycle to election cycle, and it's the provincial government that controls the funding, it's really, really difficult to have the long view in mind because the government of the day is looking to the next election and electability. They're not necessarily going, okay, 20 years from now, what do we need? And let's start investing in that now. It's a lot harder to make that plug to the public who's voting for you uh, because all they see is dollar signs and you know overspending and all sorts of stuff. And when you're in an opposition position, it's really easy to go after that. Yeah, I think that's an issue. The, the biggest issue broadly in politics is that there's an issue of agency there where people who are in political seats ultimately are not aiming to serve the citizens in the short or long term. It's, I want to stay in power. How can I? And understanding every decision I make is going to be scrutinized in one way or another, either by the people who put you into office or the people who didn't want you in office or your opposition in office. And rather than just saying, it doesn't matter what happens four years from now, I'm not here to think about getting reelected. I'm here to do the job that's necessary while I am in office. But that's just not an attitude. Uh, It doesn't seem to be common. And it doesn't seem like people who, and maybe this is unfair, but it at least doesn't appear that people who get into those positions of power are the type of people who who would look for those positions because they, they want to serve the community. But let's move. Uh, I wanted to talk about the, the, the bureaucratic system of hospitals 
in Ontario because people have the general concept of the difference between private and public medicine. Right. On the extreme ends, private being a, a private money funds this operation and therefore the consumer is paying for all medicine that happens or there's some sort of insurance that they've purchased or insurance that they've gotten through work, which covers the cost of private medicine. And then public medicine would be the collective taxpayer dollar is giving universal necessary medicine to everybody who needs to go to the hospital for any reason for procedures or surgeries that are that are required to keep that person healthy and alive. This, of course, doesn't cover uh, most elective surgeries. But there's also a hierarchy within hospitals. Hospitals have CEOs. Hospitals have budgets. Hospitals receive certain amounts of funds. Uh, and even though it's my understanding that those funds have to stay within the government system to some degree, there is a way to distribute that money within the hospital that serves those direct stakeholders. It's not like if a hospital has a capacity of or a, a, a large influx of money, that all just goes back into the taxpayer's pocket. So can you talk about a little bit about this, the bi- quote unquote business structure of, of a hospital? Of a hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So it well in so in Ontario, hospitals are publicly funded and they are set up as not for profit corporations. So that means that they have uh, a board of directors, which is populated by community members. And that board has a fiduciary responsibility to the community. So the hospital has to generate community value. Obviously, it does so by providing medical services. Um, with, within legislation, hospitals must balance their budget every year. So they have to stay within their budget. They cannot maintain a deficit position like a private for-profit corporation would be able to do you know, with lenders and creditors, et cetera. Hospitals cannot do that. So they are very much dependent on the amount of funding that is allotted to them each year, which can be a little bit difficult to predict, and that raises the challenges. And it's much more difficult to get extra funding as needed for unforeseen things that come up, like pandemics, uh, in order to provide the services to hire the personnel that you need to. So that's, I guess, sort of a a snapshot of the corporate structure. So uh, but like any corporation, yes, so there's there's an executive level. So there's a CEO, there are vice presidents. Um, there are directors, managers, et cetera. So there's a whole organization chart that looks after the different departments. And then alongside that, there's a clinical leadership structure uh, for all of the clinical departments. So you'll have um, physician heads of departments that work with directly the vice presidents on the hospital administrative side in order to just get the business of stuff done. Um, so you can imagine at a hospital like mine where I work, which is a major you know, academic referral center, we have tons of departments. It's a very large organization. It's very complex. We have a budget of, I think it's close to $2 billion. Um, so there, there's a lot going on in there. And yeah. doing anything, you know, it's, it's like you know, turning the aircraft carrier sort of thing, right? Like it takes a lot of effort, uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of committee work, etc., to to do this kind of stuff. So on the on the side of the hospital structure, you have on one side you have essentially the business structure, which is led by people who maybe have some sort of healthcare experience and positions from the past, but it's not mandatory for those positions. It's not mandatory. So o- often you'll see a hospital CEO comes from kind of two camps. They'll they'll either be a finance person. Um, you know, coming from accounting or, or something like that or business background, uh, or there'll be a physician who has essentially become an administrator and, and business savvy person. Um, so you get those two different flavors and you often get a different strategy depending on who's in that role because, you know, as a physician who had worked on the front lines, they've got a little bit more of a, a clinical experience and focus on operations that way. Whereas when the financial person is in that seat, uh, they're more focused on, you know, 
accounting, making sure that allocations of resources are uh, where they should be, et cetera. And so that can kind of change the, the culture and the dynamic within the organization. And then on the practical leadership mm -hmm. side, everybody who's heading up those departments is a physician. On the clinical department side, yeah. Right. And at the at the managerial level, so often people are promoted into those roles from the clinical world, so nurses, um, physios, respiratory therapists, you know, we draw from, from that base, they move up the ranks, um, and then, you know, we'll get promoted up the chain with years of, of service and experience um, as, as they can do, yeah. So as an aside, do you have uh, do you have a personal opinion or any feelings on our ministers of health in Ontario and nationally not having any previous health experience? So, for instance, our our uh, our minister of health for Ontario is a lawyer, and our minister of health for uh, federally is an economist, I believe. Do you feel like those are positions that require somebody with healthcare experience, or do you think it's less important in those situations? Well, it's, it's hard to get that if you don't have a you know, <laughs> physician in cabinet. Um, I think I think it helps. I mean, we we've seen examples uh, of physician ministers of health over time. Um, you know, it's 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 a very double-edged sword. Because as soon as you get into that political sphere, it's like you know the people that you came from almost kind of turn on you a little bit, uh, because you've you've gone to the dark side. Right. So it, it can be a bit dangerous there. I mean, it's it's nice to know that that person has at least an understanding of what it's like to to train, to see patients one on one, like to do the work of what the system is supposed to be doing. So I, I do think that that's really helpful. And, you know, with with the way that politics is structured, you've you've got your advisors, you've got, you know, staffers around you that are going to help with the uh, the machinery of, of the political system. So, yeah, for sure. I, I think it's it's reasonable. But um, again, you've, you've got to you've got to have the people who are willing to go into those positions and to leave their clinical practice that they trained for. Gotcha. So going back to uh, going back to the hospital and understanding the money structure of how taxpayer dollars turn into service, and you can talk you can talk about this as much as you're comfortable because I'm not sure if there are professional limitations on what you can discuss or what you can disclose. So I'll just say I'll that. Tell you, but I'll have to kill you. So yeah. I'll, I'll I'll say good luck. I'll say that up front. Uh, but I've tried. There's been very transparent financial information coming out of the U.S. as far as the financial incentives that have been put in place for COVID admissions, whether it's someone who is hospitalized uh, with from COVID, someone who is put into the ICU, who ends up on a ventilator. There's all these different incentive structures in the U.S. And the dollar figures attached to those incentive structures are significant. And I don't know what it costs to actually directly provide those services versus how much additional funds there might be there. But I know that there are similar incentive structures that similar as far as that they exist that were put into Ontario hospitals where there's different coding systems put in with different financial attachments for different sorts of uh, coding and admission that were COVID based. Can you can you give any specific insight into the model that was put into your hospital, or are those dollar figures that you're not supposed to talk about? Uh, so I'm I'm not sure what what dollar incentives you're specifically referring to on the on the U.S. side, um, but when it comes to COVID specific funding in Ontario, um, there were essentially stipends. And like you know, per diems or hourly rates set up to pr to provide certain services. Um, so, for example, uh, for you know we 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 did this where we created a whole new team to look after COVID patients. So you know a team dedicated to just COVID care. Um, which meant that there weren't necessarily uh, trainees staffing it, uh, and the volumes were quite variable. So you know, you could have you know three or four patients. It could have ballooned up to thirty patients. We we didn't really know what was going to happen, so it made sense 
in that circumstance to, you know, A, for the government to recognize the risk, because this was early on and we truly didn't know uh, how dangerous a situation this was. And physicians, you know, putting themselves directly in the line to do this, you know, probably deserve some hazard pay as a result. Um, but then because we're, we're traditionally paid fee for service, if you know, the volumes were not predictable, then you, there needed to be kind of a, a base of, uh, of income available so that you knew it was actually worthwhile to provide that coverage. Um, and, and those those rates were, I mean, pretty pretty reasonable. I, I certainly don't think that they were astronomical by any means. I can you know imagine what they might be in the U.S., which probably would be astronomical. Yeah. Um, but as far as as far as Ontario goes, it was you know pretty par for the course. I think. So were there uh, were there specific uh, were there specific financial parameters laid out for? If somebody uh, codes as a COVID hospitalization, if somebody codes as COVID ICU, if someone has to go on a ventilator, are there specific there, additional to what normal hospital compensation would there, have been in a non-COVID some year? There were temporary uh, fee-for-service codes that were created to, uh, to remunerate those specific things for sure. Uh, again, recognizing the additional risk. So if you're in a in an airway situation where you have to intubate somebody. So, you know, you're you're in there trying to put a tube in somebody's airway. You can imagine that droplets would be flying everywhere. And so, you know, the most risky situation possible. Um, so, uh, yeah, so th those were in place. And then we had an additional airway team who's been on call, still on call, um, that gets paid around the clock to provide those services, you know, if and when necessary. So uh, all of that infrastructure was in there. I think in the grand scheme, the total amount of funding dedicated to that will not be significant and you know when compared to the healthcare's overall you know 50 billion dollar budget yeah well i'll i'll connect why that question is important for yeah. this conversation because but i i mean it, i i don't think any of these things were sufficient to really alter the behavior of physicians in this circumstance right. like they they weren't enticing enough that people were lined up at the door going hey how do i get my share it was you know very <laughs> i could i could tell you the experience was very much the opposite which was okay you know how do we cobble together staffing to to make this work and make sure that we have a backup schedule on top of that so we were you know constantly juggling that right and and we'll i'll come back to this because there's one more thing that that i want to cover and ask you here but the reason why I'm touching on this part of the conversation is because there is a growing perception of physicians that was more something you would you would relate to U.S. medicine uh, for the past however long you've been interested in in understanding anything about uh, about uh, medicine from from a medical to citizen to taxpayer perspective, but with the with public release of the existence of COVID, uh, COVID incentives in hospitals. Uh, and you can imagine how these things play out in the media, as well as how these things play out within certain circles of people who have certain attitudes about what COVID may or may not have been, what was perhaps real or fake, and, and the amount of people who are in the camp that there's some element of conspiracy to COVID. It's it's a significant number of people. So this acted to further the attitude that physicians, even in Ontario, even in Canada, have some sort of financial incentive, not just in the hospital and what we're talking about right now, but with everyday jobs down to the family physician, uh, where they are essentially a glorified drug dealer motivated by money where the services that they provide, they do in a way where they can collect a lot of money rather than worry about the health of their patients. Now, we're going to go back to that because that's <laughs> going to be that uh, that was intended to be the core of this conversation is talking about that perception, because I feel like that perception is getting bigger and stronger. When I look at when I look at people's general attitudes about medicine and physicians and social media, I'm seeing more of those sorts of 
comments and conversations coming right. up. So it was something I wanted to address. But a question that I wanted to ask you, because you talked about, number one, nurse burnout, uh, shortages of nurses and PSWs uh, within the, the incentive structure that would come with COVID-19, that it does indeed exist. And you feel like given the circumstances of risk and, and the changes in the job, the unique changes in, in risk and demand on the job, that some amount of compensation for that is warranted. Now, this is going to be a difficult question, I assume, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyways, because some would say that there is a, there were a significant amount of people in Ontario, in Canada, during that time who were forced out of work, who had to go bankrupt, who were on government subsidies for the majority of two years because by the nature of their work and in not being publicly funded, they were just hung out to dry where your business is closed or you can't go to work and you don't get to make your regular pay. You are going to collect $1,000, $1,200, dollars a month until we decide that you can go back to work. Someone who's in that position might have the attitude of nurses and physicians got the opportunity to work and recognizing that the job is very difficult and it's a trying time and you're under unique stress and accepting all of those things, that is still your job. It is the job that you are in. And uh, I can't remember the number, but the Ford government also just released a cash bonus for nurses across Ontario. And I can't remember the number, but I think it's something like $10,000 per per nurse. And I could be wrong there. I just looked at it I yesterday. I hadn't heard that. But okay. uh, he's at least announced that whether he follows through or not, I don't know how how yeah. far this, Interesting this is to passing. Timing. Yeah. yeah, but okay. I, it, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. But a cash bonus for nurses. And it, it, I'm playing devil's advocate here, and everyone should know my wife is a physician. So it's not like it's not like I'm pretending to be the sufferer here, but I'm also a small business owner, and I also started yeah. a alliance for 400 Ontario business owners who were being forced closed. So I, I have some insight into both sides of this coin. And I think there is certainly a case to be made that if you're someone who has a bankrupt small business or you were forced on government subsidies, which are not substantial for most people compared to what they would usually make, when taxpayer money is then being filtered to people who were allowed to work and get their full pay, and now they are getting bonus, and they, you know, just not to just to point the finger at uh, medicine because uh, our MPs our ministers, our prime minister, they've also given themselves all very significant raises over the course uh, with some of that uh, with some of that being leveraged by the stressful situation of COVID-19. But if someone brings that up to you and says, yeah, I get that that the job was difficult and that you were under stress and you were under a certain amount of risk at times, not even knowing what that risk is, and you might be very deserving, but what about all of these other people who couldn't even work? What what insider perspective would you give somebody who is perhaps on that side? Yeah, well, I, I can absolutely understand and, and appreciate the frustration. Um, you know, I, I, Sound bites are great, <laughs> of course. Um, and unfortunately, we, I think, we feel like we understand things just based on you know social media snippets and and media snap bites and our sound bites and all this kind of stuff. But you know, as with anything, the more and more that you get into the nuances and you actually understand, the more you realize we don't understand. Right. So you know, even if you just look at physicians as a group. You know, it's it's not a uniform story for that group. So you know the difference between uh, hospital-based inpatient medicine specialists like myself, who you know that service is cranking 365 days a year, no matter what. Um, that's different than the surgeon who had their elective surgeries shut down, which is the bulk of their income. You know, for probably a total of you know. 16 to 18 months during all of this. So, you know, you've, so across doctors, there's a significant discrepancy in who actually bore the brunt of this thing, right? Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, but yeah, definitely, I, I, I do absolutely, I, I do feel that I did have the privilege of continuing to get to go to work. 
and and I saw that and I was never in favor of the widespread restrictions and lockdowns um, as they actually unfolded. Uh, I don't think it needed to be as strict uh, as as it was. And that's on and record I, too. That's not just some retroactive attitude that you can conveniently say now. Of, absolutely, I was never no, for was, those things. Yeah, you no, were you were vocal about right, it. Right as in well. the heart of it, I, I was absolutely vocal about it. Um, and I think that the the data supports that now that we can look back on it. Um, so, yeah, for sure. And you know, outside of healthcare, I think we also saw examples of where you know people just by virtue of luck or circumstance were in a sector of the economy that exploded because of of the pandemic you know people who were already set up like you know the guys who created zoom didn't do it <laughs> because they knew that covid was coming right they weren't part of the pandemic you don't know that <laughs> i you're right it's vaccine just manufacturers yeah so i mean but they of course you know became probably billionaires as a result of, of this happening so, you know, sectors that were poised to continue their business on the Internet, virtually, whatever, probably did fine still. Whereas in-person services like gyms, you know, bore the brunt. And that was not fair and could have been done differently and, and more safely. And, you know, hopefully next time we, we learn from this. Yeah. And perhaps the, the lesson there is that instead of people looking at it, like I professionally suffered and you professionally profited. Therefore, you are the enemy in this situation and I'm the sufferer. Maybe energy is better focused by all people to look at the decision makers who perhaps didn't have the foresight uh, or whatever they, they perhaps could have otherwise Apologies, uh, the very important Dr. Appleton got a got a medical call that he had to take there. But uh, what I was what I was getting to here is perhaps rather than people in different uh, professional situations pointing the finger at each other of, of who got what and who lost what, perhaps that energy is better directed towards policymakers uh, and lawmakers of the time who perhaps uh, fumbled how that situation was managed financially and when things should have been closed and had to have been closed because you can even see now with recent shutdowns and i posted about this the other day uh dr juni in the ontario science table when things were opening back up so all the service businesses that were shut down again in january mm -hmm. um, were scheduled to open back up on january 31st he said and, and this isn't a direct quote i'm paraphrasing here but he said something along the lines of this is a mistake and cases are going to rise and if we open things back up and we allow bars restaurants gyms all these things to open back up it's going to be a problem and it's been how long since then like six weeks and cases have just continued to go down and down and down and down and then flatline i mean i i don't want to say too too much <laughs> but my my frustration with the ontario science table has been high yeah um i can't think of a time when they were were right in the magnitude of, of their predictions. And it, it was always quite alarmist, uh, the messaging coming from there. So I, 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 I'm, I was happy to see the divergence with the, um, you know, chief medical officer making his decisions, um, which were not in line with the science table anymore. I've, and I found this, not that I want to go off on a tangent, but I found it very interesting that when one side of, you know, people who would have masked forever, done 20 booster shots, would just kept this thing going on that side as long as possible, it was always listen to the experts, listen to these people, listen to the chief medical officer of health. But then as soon as his message changed and he said, well, given the circumstances, now it's time to, to move on for all yeah. these reasons then he's an idiot and he doesn't no. know what he's talking about rather than this yeah. person who you stood behind this whole time as soon as his position changes from your ideology now he's a dummy right and, you know you don't have to and, say and anything pick, pick your experts right so uh, and and you can point to whatever evidence you want um, but all of that, I think, is just very subjective, how people align themselves. And it has more to do with just how they feel inside about, you know, do, do I put a priority on safety uh, or do I put a priority on let's move on with our lives and be a little more risk tolerant? Yeah. And this is relevant to the conversation, specifically uh, this part of the conversation that we're moving into, because public health has 
greatly mismanaged a lot of this situation. And some of that is just because no one's been in this situation before. And yeah. I think a lot of people who get into those positions in public health wouldn't be there if they could foresee that this is what their job was going to entail. And then, of course, there were things that were just fumbled because mostly because of politics, right, and worried about perception and certain people getting mad at you for making particular decisions. But I've seen the rightful attitude in some cases uh, against public health and public health officials and these decision makers who are essentially politicians with a medical background. These are not these are not the best and brightest of the world of science and medicine and research. These are people who are who are representing medicine and health on a very political side. But the negative energy that was that was perhaps rightfully directed at that group of people under certain circumstances, arguably, has trickled down to physicians where now physicians are having a target on them that perhaps should be very specifically placed on the backs of public health. Because I would assume there is a great diversity in how physicians felt about this whole thing. And just like there's a lot of heterogeneity in the general population, I assume that translates pretty well to how different people in who are actually on the ground having to deal with this thing medically probably have uh, there's probably many dissenters from what public health directives might have been for quiet dissent. Sure. Yeah. I, I, like like many groups, I think physicians, uh, the majority of physicians, like you just want to keep your head down and go to work. Yes. And and get the job done. That was and, the experience of my wife. She was yeah. not interested in anything other than just doing her job. And unfortunately, uh, and I don't want to speak for her, but unfortunately, a lot of that had to do with as a physician feeling like your head would be on the chopping block, which <laughs> which it blatantly was at some points where if you talk, if you go outside the lines of speaking about these things, there will be consequences placed on you to the point where the Canadian government and the Ontario government was asking the OMA to discipline physicians who would go outside of the general medical narrative and, of what was and, appropriate to talk about. And they were sending messaging about that. Like yes. We were getting emails from the OMA, uh, from CPSO, saying, you know, be careful what you're putting out there on social media or whatever. If it's, you know, thought to be misinformation of, of any kind uh, or anti-vaccine or anything like that, then you absolutely, there, there could be repercussions. How do you feel about that? Because I'm sure, not that I'm sure, unquestionably, there were a, a small number of physicians who spoke in a way that could certainly be deemed irresponsible for someone in that position to, so, I to mean, speak. Find any group of 15 or 20,000 people and there's going to be a few wackadoodles in there. And so, <laughs> right? so so how do you yeah. feel about this generalized censorship on physicians as a whole? Do you believe that that physicians that the physician patient relationship should come first as far as how this thing is treated, how this thing is discussed, how no matter how much unknown there is are you more on the side of it's that's between the physician and the patient? And as long as it's safe and as long as the proper education and consent is there, that's how they deal with something like COVID is between them to work out in that scenario. Or do you, or do you move more to the side of this thing has to be managed at a higher, broader level where there's restrictions put in place for physicians rather than giving them erring more on the side of physician autonomy. So there, yeah, so there is a very deep history, and I'm glad you brought up the term autonomy, of physicians being ferociously protective of professional autonomy. And as soon as we perceive as a group that that is at risk, then physicians come together collectively very fast and with a lot of influence. And that has been the case since the beginning of you know the public health care system in Canada. Um, so, yeah, I, we, we need to protect that autonomy. And we've gone through a lot of training to use our professional judgment to help the person in front of us. And yeah, at you know, broader extension to help the community around us for their health care and medical needs. And so a lot of the talk and banter and everything that goes on at the policy level, at the public health level, 
honestly is just a distraction from getting the work of healthcare done. And that's where, you know, most, most of my colleagues, uh, myself included, uh, often just go, okay, like you guys keep talking. That's fine. I'm going to be over here doing what we need to do to actually help the people on the front line who maybe not may not be able to advocate for themselves may not be in a good situation because of socioeconomics or uh, exposure in a high-risk sector or whatever it may be um i don't know if that answers your question at all but well i not to drag you deeper into the controversy <laughs> but that's precisely what i'm going to do here one of the one of the pivotal points in physician's ability to treat patients as they see fit with any sort of condition that came up uh, over the past two years as far as a medication that was most publicly at the top of the headlines would be something like ivermectin mm -hmm. right now let's let's not make any assumptions about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of something like ivermectin something that i think we don't have to make assumptions so something that i <laughs> but something that i think is completely non-controversial is that it's safe under under standard use it is safe it's been used billions of times and the risk is incredibly low so even if you're a physician who wrongly believes that ivermectin is going to be something that can be effectively used to treat your patient considering that the chances of it being toxic or problematic are incredibly low and the risk is somewhat benign should that physician not be able to make that decision on their own between them and their patient because if you were a physician in ontario and you were prescribing ivermectin to people for COVID 19 there was not necessarily an institutional consequence there, but there was certainly going to be a social consequence there, and it was heavily discouraged, which this is a very specific example, but I see that as a major issue where you say you cannot treat your patient as as you see fit, and we do not we do not think you are capable under these circumstances. And while there's lots of controversy with with all of these different medicines, you know, ivermectin is not the only one. There's many in there that showed some level of potential for early treatment. I think there's certainly a rightful concern that early treatment options were not given were not given the opportunity to work. Sure. But just releasing that to the masses and saying, go ahead and prescribe it would not help you determine whether or not it actually does, in fact, work, because that would not be done in a rigorously, objectively observed setting like a trial. So we would have no idea. It would only be based on, you know, one to one subjective accounts and anecdotes of I prescribed it. They got better, which was going to happen 95 percent of the time anyway. Absolutely. So I yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if you're just talking about prescribing things, what we call off label, as in not uh, not an indicated condition for. So medications are approved by Health Canada for specific indications. Uh, but they're often used off-label. So we use them, we prescribe them for things that weren't originally studied. That's common practice. Um, and that absolutely needs to be protected in the physician's professional judgment to be able to do that. Um, when it comes to things which are subject to a little bit more, you know, potential conflict of interest or bias, such as uh, prescribing for family or prescribing for self, um, then there have to be additional policy safeguards against that um, in certain circumstances because objectivity is not maintained. And I think in this circumstance, it was difficult to remain objective because everything was so politicized. Everything was so big, so controversial. Everyone had an opinion that if you're prescribing that, you're essentially taking a stance, you're you stating your opinion with your prescription pen. And that's not a good way to practice medicine. You know, for something like that, which is a burgeoning disease uh, that we don't know enough about, we really do need to look to how do we put things in, into order quickly to get the best objective data as quickly as we can 
and look at that and then make decisions based on that instead of, well, hey, you know, Dr. Joe over here has, you know, he did it for his patients and they got better. So I'm going to do it, too. Sure. So I'll, I'll push back a little bit more and be uh, and be more specific okay. with this or at least, or frame it in a different way. <clears throat> so let's assume ivermectin was never a thing. It was never this controversy. But we know that there is a virus and we know that there are antiviral drugs and physicians have access to antiviral drugs that are very low risk. When there is a disease spreading that we understand is a virus and that there's potential for off-label antiviral medication in order to potentially treat this thing early at very, very low risk, taking all of the label names out of the equation, do you think a physician should have the right to distribute those medications to patients under this scenario of unknown when what's known is that this is a virus, this is an antiviral, and the antiviral is low risk. So uh, I'm willing to try it. Or do you think there's a level of irresponsibility there as well? I, I think logically that that makes sense. And yes, we should protect the the physician's professional right to do that. But at the same time, the physician has a professional duty to do their due diligence. And if anyone were to ever come back and say, well, hey, why did you do this? You need to be able to lay it out in those terms and say, well, you know, based on my experience, based on my knowledge, based on the evidence that does exist, this is the rational, logical explanation for why I think that this might be reasonable in this specific circumstance. And that's what we do every day. Like that, that's normal professional decision-making. Um, so if you can do that, then I think absolutely that's that's exactly what you should be doing. Um, it just you know when when you give those specific examples, of course, they're a little bit more charged up, um, then that professional you know duty can quickly go by the wayside. Sure. So speaking of educating yourself as a physician on an ongoing basis whether it's it's daily dealing with each individual patient or more broadly yeah. over time or just scrolling twitter yeah, yeah. right well how does yeah. that process work because ongoing education for physicians is not really standardized in a way where the ongoing education is rigorous but the evolution of health and medicine and what could be understood rapidly changes every single day yep. could you give some insight into what the what the actual responsibility is for the physician as far as what they have to do to remain a physician yep. versus what would probably be best practice. Because in my experience, and I know quite a few physicians, and there's a lot of heterogeneity there as far as what they know, what they continue to know, their interest in different areas, whether it's uh, whether it's you know medicine or preventative medicine or lifestyle and all these different sorts of interventions, which can all play a role into a person's health. There's a lot of individual individuality there between yeah. physicians. Okay. So, can you talk about what a physician has to know once they you know aside from the standard things they're expected to know at school? versus what you think is maybe lacking and what you think physicians should be keeping up on in order to do the yeah. job. So we, we are licensed by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, and you have to renew that license annually. And in order to do so, you have to uh, attest to the fact that you're staying up on your continuing medical education. Um, so for family physicians, that would be with the uh, College of Family Physicians uh, of Canada. I'm maybe getting that wrong. Uh, <laughs> but the, for specialists, it's the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Uh, so within that, we have a maintenance of certification requirement. And so every four-year cycle, you have to do 400 credits or credit hours of, of continuing medical education. And that can come in the form of um, you know, reading journal articles, going to conferences, uh, attending seminars, etc. So lots of different ways to to get that credit time. Um, but you have to log that. You have to keep track. Um, and then the Royal College, you know, issues your certificate to say that you met that requirement. And then the CPSO, you know, knows that you're you're continuing to grow your uh, your knowledge base. So you know, as you're saying, a lot of variability within that. Um, but for a specific physician, what happens naturally is you adapt to what your patient population demands of you, right? So we go through 
uh, a standardized education program, but then when you fall out the other end in the real world, you have a group of patients that need your services. And it's often not quite in alignment with what you necessarily learned going through your training. And so you quickly figure out what that is, and then your ongoing education reflects that. So you know, what does my population need? Great, I'm gonna go to a conference that focuses on something that's gonna help me there. That's what my journal article reading is gonna be about, um, and so on and so forth. So for me, because we need to get in a cardiometabolic health plug, <laughs> uh, so, you know, my interest outside of my hospital practice is cardiometabolic health. So I spend much of my time reading in that specific, um, uh, you know, part of the medical literature to stay as up to date as, as possible so that when I have patients and coming through, I know the latest and greatest. I know what the latest guidelines say and we can have, you know, the best possible outcomes for, for that person, uh, which means that my knowledge base diverges from m that of my colleagues who's focusing in a different area, like, you know, a blood clot specialist who focuses on thrombosis. Like, that's very different, and there's an equally massive amount of literature on that specifically. But the wonderful thing is we can refer to each other and we can collaborate and we can all benefit from working together and getting different opinions. And of course, there's going to be variety just based off of the nature of the individual. And there's some doctors who are a little bit more determined to be great doctors. And yeah. there's some doctors that are Good just happy. Yeah. <laughs> that are, yeah. and there's, there's some doctors that are just going to be happy to collect a paycheck just and, and keep by. a job. Yeah. So uh, we've, we've actually covered a, a lot of what I wanted to cover, uh, but not necessarily in the way that I, yeah. that I thought we would get there but when, not how i'm a shill for <laughs> right or, yeah. but this does this does uh give me a natural transition into something i want to cover because you you said something along the lines of your patient population is essentially going to determine where your education goes as a physician right the things you see and deal with are going to determine where you need to be educated assuming you want to be well educated in that space now, this gets to the heart of what I want to discuss in this podcast because there's this attitude and argument about physicians that they are drug peddlers and it's the sick care system and there's no money in the cure, there's no money in health, there's only money in sickness. And when I read those sorts of art, it's not that I don't understand what leads a person to get to that sentiment. And it's not that there isn't anything there, but the first thing I say in response to those people is physicians are, if you're going to call a physician a drug dealer, which is a, is a poor characterization of something that you could maybe position as true in a different way without making it out to be a sinister <laughs> thing. But if a physician is a drug peddler, it's because their clientele are drug users. And by that, I mean, when 70% of the population is overweight, when almost everyone has some type of disorder or disease where for you to be a healthy individual is incredibly rare, physicians didn't cause that system of sick care. And or did we? <laughs> and any physician who who moves into the conveyor belt of the sick care system, it's not because they created it and they're motivated by it and that's what they want for themselves and their patients. It's when your patient population is overweight, unhealthy, diseased, and looking for the easiest way to manage that disease and symptoms. And you know that the vast majority of those people, if you, even if you're in the position to give the best advice on diet and health and lifestyle and all these sorts of things, most patients aren't going to really take that advice practically and use it. So as a physician, what options do you have left aside from, I'm going to meet you where you're at, I'm going to give you this prescription so that you don't die in the next week, or regardless of that, you're at least not in pain and suffering every single day. I don't understand how that can be directed on physicians. That is the issue of the population for the state that they have left themselves. And of course, there's unlimited complexities as to why the population is in that state. And there's, there's some responsibility you can outsource to many systems that have led to this diseased population that we live within. But to place that on the shoulders of physician, I think, is completely unfair. And I'm sure most physicians would rather have a different client population than the population that they have with now. 
Can you speak to that in some way? Yeah, there are many directions that that could go. Um, But it might just be simple to say that I get paid the same regardless of if I prescribe something. It doesn't it doesn't matter. So and I think that's something people don't understand. We we don't get paid for drugs. Um, In fact, the, the pharmaceutical system is is a essentially a private pay system with the exception of the Ontario drug benefit, which covers people over age 65. Uh, or those on disability, et cetera. So, yeah, whether, you know, if I sit down with you for 20 minutes, whether that results in a prescription at the end of it or not, it, it makes no difference to me. It, it doesn't, doesn't change my pay structure whatsoever. Um, so there's really actually no incentive there. The only potential incentive uh, other than, you know, appropriate treatment of conditions based on evidence um, would be that people, honestly, you kind of get the sense that they're in there looking for it, right? They, they feel like um, their, their concerns have been ratified and something's being done about it if somebody says, this is the diagnosis you have and this is the way to treat it. Like, that's a very satisfying uh, conclusion to an encounter with a physician. You feel like something's being done. And there's also some level of obligation for you to treat patients in that way where they're likely to accept the treatment as well. Like if somebody comes in and they have high blood pressure and you know there are lifestyle interventions that they could potentially Mm -hmm. uh, access in order to manage that blood pressure, but they're clearly not going to do it. You can't as a physician go, I could give you this medication, but I'm not a drug peddler. So you go do these things. And if you don't, maybe you're (laughs) going to die in, in six to eight months. But I have this, uh, you know, I have my perspective on what you need, so I'm not going to give you access to, to this thing. I think there's probably some some liability there as a physician as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, everything, the decisions we make are based on levels of risk, right? So, and we're often doing more than one thing at a time. It's like, okay, well, you probably would benefit from this medication now to lower your risk in the future. But at the same time, let's go to work on these other things so that, you know, maybe you don't have to be on that drug forever. And this is just a bridge to a healthier life down the road. Um, But, I mean, the population that I see, most of them do end up on those medications essentially forever um, because they're at such an advanced state of their disease course um, that it demands it. And that's the group that we, we have evidence in. And it actually does make clinical difference. It keeps people out of hospital. Um, it you know reduces mortality, all those uh, exciting things. Um, I think it's it's different when you talk about a you know a younger population, 30s to 50s, who haven't accrued all of those disease states yet. Who you could kind of go either way. It's like you know we could medicate this, or why don't we take six months and and use another strategy that doesn't require medications, and then see if you need it or not. So that's there's some equipoise in those scenarios. Yeah, I don't get the. I don't get the rationality of the implication that there's all these really healthy people who go to the doctor for no reason and then become sick because of what the doctor is doing to them when, when they enter their office, rather than the obvious that sick people go to the doctor, sick people get and remain sick because of all of the things they are or are not doing already. And those uh, the, that demographic of people typically respond better to taking a pill than to doing a different sort of work that would have prevented them from going to well, the and doctor that, in and the first place. kind of underscores part of the problem, right, is that you sick people go to the doctor, and if you're not feeling sick, you don't. But that doesn't mean that there's not something that requires optimization. And this is part of my whole argument about trying to just get people more aware of the cardiometabolic health preventive stuff that can be done earlier on so that you don't have to become sick and then go to the doctor. If we can have more of those conversations earlier, and I think a lot of physicians find those conversations really refreshing to have rather than just dealing with this like really complex, super sick people all the time. Um, but then you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation, we probably do need more physicians to crank through the system to be able to populate enough people to have those conversations out there. Because right now, I'm sure um, your wife's experience is like this. Like, they're not shy on clients, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, there's there's enough people, and a lot of them have you know real stuff going on. They are sick, so you actually don't feel like, like if you're triaging your time. 
I really don't have, you know, 30 minutes to carve out to have a conversation with you because you want to remain healthy because I got to deal with a whole bunch of people over here who actually, you know, need me to do something now. Otherwise, they're going to go to the hospital. Yeah, so, it's it's yeah. complex. And this is yeah. where I, if we had more time, I would go into the conversation of then do we really need a new medical school or do we need do we need more money into whether you know whether you can argue the the potential effectiveness or not how much money needs to be put into preventative measures subsidizing healthy foods giving more access to the tools that people can use early to prevent them from needing to go into the doctor's office but I mean, this is over an hour and we've covered here's, quite a bit. Here's my prescription. <laughs> I think everybody should work no more than four hours a day and they should spend the first half of the day exercising, eating properly and planning you know, the rest of their day to be done in a, in a healthy manner. And I think that would go a long way. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. That's a, I think that I feel like that's a European that's, model that's my blue sky. Uh, of life and medicine. Well, yeah. I hope we can continue this conversation further because there was a lot more that I wanted to that I, I would like to talk about in this thread. Uh, but I, I don't think we want to go too much further than this. Is there anything you want to say in closing? We went over a bunch of stuff, so it's not like you can put a neat bow on it. But anything you want to have as a last last message? Um, I, I mean, no pressure. I, I, not, not really. <laughs> I mean, get it, get it. it's becoming sunny outside. Get out. Enjoy the sunshine. Get some vitamin D in your life, and it'll make you happier. Doctor's orders. <laughs>